Hi guys and welcome back to this week's episode of Let's Chat Ethics. I'm your co-host Oriana. And I'm your other co-host Amanda. So on today's episode we're really excited to be joined by Charles Radcliffe who is the co-founder of Ethics Grade. So Amanda and I have actually been wanting to speak to Charles for a while because we were really, really intrigued and excited by the work that Ethics Grade have been doing and just wanted to learn more about what it actually means to rate these tech companies in terms of their ethics and, you know, what, what will that mean for them in the future, the tech companies, and how do they react and respond to this? And how has Charles found that these companies have taken to being rated so obviously ESG has been around for a while in terms of the financial sector but obviously this is kind of a very new space in terms of rating tech companies on their ethics so yeah we're really excited for you to listen to today's episode and we hope you enjoy Charles thank you very much for being here today and I'd love for you to give kind of a further introduction to yourself and what you do and um, the work that you've been doing in this space no, it's it's great to be here and nice to be talking to people who care about philosophy and ethics because there's probably not enough of us out there. Um, <laughs> yeah. So it's particularly in the tech industry. Um, <laughs> yeah. So um, I guess uh, by way of introduction, I spent my entire career in tech um, and um, yeah, absolutely love tech and um, I love the impact and uh, uh, change and difference it can bring to the world but I've always been maybe a little bit concerned about the dark side of of the industry and um, but my relationship with the industry started um, you know right at the beginning of my career I, I wanted to go into tech but my my dad to try to talk me out of it and um, he suggested that a career in um, in uh, in, the, in the legal industry would be a, a better a better more respectable way to make a living so I uh, I studied law and very quickly uh, abandoned any commercial or contract law or any of that side of it and got into legal philosophy and legal history and um, for me that was the aspect of, of of law which was most interesting and then it was really clear to my dad that I was never going to make a, a living out of that because I wasn't good <laughs> enough to be an academic and and even if I was there's no money in legal philosophy um, so I went into tech and got my way after all and um, and then I spent 20 years in the tech industry um, and um, I, uh, I was running a data analytics company about, uh, about 10 years ago, and um, suddenly I was increasingly becoming concerned about um, the impacts that, that data analytics was having uh, and the negative impact that it could have. And my engineers just loved the problems and the challenges and the, the kind of engineering kind of skill that was required. And suddenly I realized that all of that sort of legal philosophy thinking and education was becoming useful to me. Um, so I started writing and talking about um, about data and ethics and tech and philosophy. I think most people thought I was slightly unhinged, um, <laughs> but, uh, but I enjoyed it. I had a lot of fun. And um, and I started a blog um, named after um, a, a kind of a talk I gave once where I said that there was um, that too, many, uh, too many data scientists in the world and not enough data philosophers. And um, so I've, I've been running a blog for I don't know, seven years now called Data Philosopher, which is all about this question of tech and ethics. And yeah, skip forward seven years and I'm now running a business, essentially uh, evaluating companies uh, on, on their sort of ethics record where it comes to tech. So yeah, it's a lot of long, a long story, but um, finally I'm doing the thing which I perhaps was always destined to do. 
Oh, that's amazing. I absolutely love that. That's I I also um I think for the audience, if you could explain a bit more about what ethics grade actually does. Um I think I think it's a, it's a super interesting concept. I know ESG is something that you know people have been talking about for years, but then when you bring in um the ethics of tech, this is more something of a more of a recent notion that um people are now kind of seeing the hype in and or seeing the wave of what's happening right now. Yeah. So, um, so what we do is we're, we're a ratings agency in the same way that Experian or Equifax um, do ratings of people's credit files, or the same way that S&P and Moody's or Refinitiv do ratings of companies' um, activities. And, um, and ESG has been around for a while. It's not nothing new. Essentially, um, uh, the financial ratings agencies look at, you know, companies' performance from a financial standpoint and whether it, they're creditworthy and whether their business, um, you know, is well run, et cetera, those sort of things. And um, and ESG ratings really look at the non-financial impact of companies. Um, and obviously a major part of that is uh, climate related and environmental sustainability. Mm-hmm. Um, increasingly in focus over the last few years has been diversity and inclusion issues. Um, but, you know, you name it, you, you can kind of put it into ESG. Um, and um, and so this has been a kind of growing industry. Uh, it's, it's a number one priority for the investment community um, because I think the investment community realised that you can't just invest in companies um, because they are profitable. You should invest in companies because they have positive impact on the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and essentially, what we're doing is we've built a we're building a, a, a technology platform that helps us automate our ratings. And the way I like to describe this to people is we're we're hunting for watermelons. And what I mean by that is we're hunting for companies that look green on the outside, but as soon as you scratch the surface, they're yellow and then very quickly red as you go deeper. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's that's kind of what we're doing. And we just picked a, a niche and the niche happens to be technology governance. And as I say, this this was a hobby of mine for years that I was like many people critical of the tech industry and you know, critical of of the usual suspects in that. Yeah. Um, the problem with the space is it's so subjective. And you know, I could be critical of Facebook for content moderation. Somebody else might say, from a data privacy perspective, it's wrong, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. We would end up having these like really interesting kind of angels on a pinhead kind of arguments as to why a particular company was bad or good, etc. But essentially, those conversations are about as useful as saying, "I like Facebook's logo," or "I like Apple's logo," and actually, I prefer. Um, this other company because it's a nicer shade of blue and you know this is kind of really it's it's kind of very subjective and very kind of meaningless and um, and um, a lot of the debate around tech ethics has been focused on um, the well I think a lot of the debate around tech ethics has always got stuck around sort of two other issues and people haven't really seen them as being separate and those two other issues are uh, regulatory compliance and so GDPR like if you go to so many conferences about um tech ethics over the over the last year few years people have started a conversation about you know ethics and tech and then very quickly it's been a conversation about gdpr and data privacy and you know there's a relationship between those two things mm. but they're not the same and um and i think one of the reasons why um why that's happened is people get confused about ethics uh, uh, uh and particularly people from a non non uh, social sciences background um, and then the other thing that's happened is people have got very stuck around, um, and I'm probably not going to make my, many friends saying this because I, I sometimes get take credit out of context, but I think a lot of the um, 
the, the a lot of the downsides of of data analytics, obviously the bias and discrimination that can come about as a result of data. And I personally don't see those as largely being ethics problems. I see them as being technical risk problems. Mm -hmm. And when I say that, what I mean is that um, the technical risks can be, um, you know, a lot of the sort of this discrimination that happens out of data comes from poor process, poor engineering process, you know, not thinking through the consequences, not having the right controls around the data, where the data comes from, all the data provenance, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And engineers like those sort of problems. Um, and then what they like to do is they like to conflate ethics down to a set of things which they can manage really easily through engineering standards. And so quite often when you raise an ethical, a real ethical challenge, which is, you know, is, is this the right thing to do? Um, and a great example would be, you know, the contact tracing apps and um, mm -hmm. so contact tracing apps and mobile phones. Um, you know, there's some real ethical challenges around that. When you ask that question to people who have a very narrow focus on data ethics, they tend to get quite confused quite quickly and shrug their shoulders and say, oh, that's somebody else's problem. And, that, and this is the problem with a kind of ethics world. So me and my co-founder were kind of digging into this area, trying to really define what we thought ethics was. And we kind of read a paper and took a very maximalist view on ethics and kind of said, look, ethics is kind of everything that's not compliance and not technical controls. And it needs to be about uh, intersubjectivity. It needs to be about relationships with people. And, you know, just because you're Facebook and you've got 3 billion users and therefore have 3 billion stakeholders to manage doesn't get you off the hook. You should still be thinking about your intersubjective uh, impact in, in, in everything you do. Um, and as we started writing this paper, we suddenly realized that more and more of these questions um, in terms of what should be looked for uh, were very analogous to the governance type controls that the climate change ESG people look for. And I think it was in the process of writing the paper, the penny dropped for me that actually we could evaluate companies on these questions. Not We're not saying is Facebook ethical and is it more ethical than, uh, uh, you know, uh, one of the other platforms, uh, LinkedIn or, or Reddit or whoever? Um, what we're saying is what are the quality of, of controls that Facebook have with regard to managing ethics questions? And are those controls around ethics um, uh, better or worse than one of the other platforms? And so essentially that's what we're, we're, we're doing. And so right now ethics grade rates 232 companies across about 20 different industries. So yeah, TikTok against Twitter or WeChat against WhatsApp or Toyota against Tesla. Um, you know, we have all the data freely available on our website. Um, and there's no catch, I should add, because we make our money by licensing our data to um, to investors. Um, so, uh, so for ordinary people like you know, you and me, uh, we're just trying to provide a public service. Mm -hmm. um, but if you're going to use our data to, to trade off and to invest with, then we ask that you pay us for it. That's really, I, so we recently talked to some people about the sort of the different ethical frameworks, I guess, that they have in, in China. So I think it's uh, very interesting that you're not evaluating exactly how ethical they are, but how they themselves sort of manage their ethical questions, I think, if I've understood correctly. Um, yeah. Yeah. So that's... And China China's really interesting um, because I think a lot of the a lot of the debate in the tech industry, around the tech industry, concerns like, well, you know, Google, Facebook, et cetera, are bad, but they're not as bad as 
Chinese companies because Chinese companies are somehow evil because they're Chinese. Um, and um, I think it's a very um, narrow view of, of, of the world. And I think um, I was, I've been very lucky to spend quite a bit of time in China. And, um, and over the last 12 months or so, I've been trying to learn um, some Chinese as well, because I think um, the more you understand um, a language, the more you can understand the epistemology of, of, of the people uh, and, and their cultural background. And um, one thing that's really clear to anyone who's spent any time in China or uh, interacted with Chinese people or, or spoken the language is that they have a very, very, very strong culture of ethics and philosophy and governance. And these questions are very central to their society. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, even on a very basic level, kind of looking at Confucius and uh, his teachings, um, it's all about how to lead a good life, what, what good means, what ethical means, and, and the relationship between the individual and power and the governance that's appropriate for those in power to wield over the rest of us. And um, so, so China has a very, very, very rich and strong discipline and tradition around these things. Um, but it just happens to be very different to our Western approach, which is very black mm -hmm. and white, good and bad, binary, you know, one on zero. And mm -hmm. in China, it's much more about balance and about harmony and about some um, other sort of concepts. And so I think, unfortunately, when we look at evaluating a Chinese company, um, we look at, we judge it by Western standards, which are just wholly inappropriate to, to judge it by um, it, within the, con the cultural context. I think there, I mean, I have a personal view that there are such things as universal truths around, say, human rights, which, um, you know, I, I definitely would struggle with some of the criticism that, that China has faced or Chinese companies have faced with regards to the, some of the domestic um, human rights. But I think mm -hmm. largely, you know, the norms around something like social credit, for example, in China um, are just very different to what we accept and what we believe in the West. And therefore, what we've tried to do is design a model that's as universal as possible. And so if we're evaluating um, uh, TikTok, for example, uh, in the Chinese market, um, you know, what we're aiming to do essentially is to provide a rating service where to a Chinese audience, they're getting uh, an appropriate rating based on that cultural footprint of that organization, whereas, mm -hmm. um, you know, they might get a different rating to a Western audience. So the personalization that we're trying to build, we haven't quite completed, but that's essentially our goal is to, um, you know, to rate companies based on 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 the, the relationship to the cultural footprint that they have, which we think is a is a superior approach to just simply imposing a Anglo-Saxon uh, Western epistemology on everyone. Yeah, yeah, that's I think that's really that's really great that you've um, brought that because we literally had uh, like Amanda was speaking in an episode a few weeks ago where we had um, Amanda's sister on actually who is a philosopher who specialises in um, emotion and looking at China and um the history and we literally spoke about all all this really how um everything gets kind of put with this western narrative and it, it, even we were discussing in our episode that came out today how um the new regulations in the eu have you know banning social like a social scoring system but, um obviously china that's in place and how can we really compare the two and say that one's one's right and one's wrong when really the cultures are completely different places like one one wouldn't work in the eu but one can work potentially in china um so that's yeah i think that's really amazing that um your ethics grade is actually doing it in a cultural um perspective rather than 
the Western narrative all the time, which I think can happen a lot, especially when we speak about AI ethics, it gets quite quite um, Eurocentric ideas of what ethics actually is. Yeah, very much so, very much so. And I think the, the, in, the very interesting thing about, um, um, my co-founder has indoctrinated me into, into um, uh, I guess, a sort of Wittgensteinian view of the world where- um, <laughs> I love Wittgenstein. Language. <laughs> Um, uh. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I think I think this idea that language is is so central to our essence um, is something which um, I I'm really so fascinated by. And going back to the learning Mandarin, um, one of the really interesting things about I think this kind of geopolitical challenge we have with China is that um, we don't understand so general big generalization here but we collectively don't understand the Chinese particularly well because so few of us speak Chinese mm -hmm. and therefore we have a view of the other and the other other is always because of our epistemology where things are black and white good and bad right or wrong uh, our epistemological basis is that the other is always wrong and the other is always evil and and therefore should be should be um you know we're confrontational in, in our response to it and because we don't have our understanding of Chinese language, we, we can't really understand Chinese epistemology particularly well. Um, and therefore at a great disadvantage in terms of trying to understand China and, and how Chinese companies think, act, work, or, or, or um, you know, the, the Chinese party and, and how, it, how it manifests its work through the world. Whereas Chinese people um, and so many people in mainland China who've never left China do appreciate and speak and, English um, and therefore mm. understand our epistemological basis and so for them to understand the western world is so much easier than for us to understand the Chinese world and I think we're in this kind of geopolitical fight where at the moment we we, we absolutely cannot win that argument because of the way it's framed by our own basis that's seen as a fight because that's like how we like to think in the west as you know confrontation with the other Mm -hmm. And also simply because we don't understand their epistemological basis. And so um, I find this so interesting. But on social credit, um, to me, what, what, where, where we get so, where social credit, I think, is such an interesting thing to explore is, um, you know, it's, 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 for me, it's a basis of, of allocating resources in an abundant economy. And, it's, and that's, I think it's a very different problem to the one that we're facing with today. I think very quickly in the next century, um, we're going to move into a world where, um, you know, so many of the luxuries that we take for granted are going to be available, hopefully to many, many more people. And um, uh, work as we knew it in the 20th century and before might be the scarce resource <laughs> in that so much of what we do is automated so that there isn't an ability for all of us to spend 40 hours of honest work and earn a earn a fair wage as a result and so in that kind of future world which you know maybe not happening in my lifetime but I think in the lifetime of my kids or grandkids so a tangible distance away from where we are today you need to find a way of allocating scarce sorry abundant resources so you need to find a way of um, allocating scarce resources in this abundant economy mm -hmm. um, because not every apartment block can face you know sunrise and you know not everyone can have a beachside apartment regardless of how much automation there is and so one way of allocating scarce resources is through essentially giving it to people who deserve it because of their behavior and their alignment of their behavior and their actions in the world, according to certain standards. Mm -hmm. um, and that's essentially what social credit 
achieves and if you think of through in the long run um and um and so those those people who conform those people who um you know uh uh lead a good life by whatever that measure is um mm -hmm. uh, get those perks and you know get the first class tickets on the train and get to travel internationally and you know get the top of the queue when the iphone comes out or whatever um <laughs> Whereas our system, we're reliant on, on essentially a monetary market system for doing this. And our system doesn't really work in that, in that context when work is scarce. How do we give money to people so that they can buy things in the market? And UBI is the best idea we've come up with. And it, if, you know, it's quite problematic. Mm -hmm. So I think the di another difference between us and China is that social credit is a really um, a very interesting way, super aligned to their cultural uh, basis and therefore doesn't really upset too many people uh, in terms of the, some of the individual freedoms that it might curtail. Um, it's a really, really interesting way of solving some of those problems and we have no solution on our side. <laughs> and also given in the context that China is thinking on a 50 year time frame about its society and we are thinking about the next five years because of our political system mm -hmm. and we've got some, some um, I, I hope people aren't listening to this and thinking I'm a sort of anti anti Democrat because I'm not. Um, but, uh, <laughs> no, I get where you're um, going with this. <laughs> but I think I think we have to think more long term and we have to start to be a little bit more open minded about some of these ideas. I guess is what I'm trying to say. Mm, yeah. I, yeah, I I feel like that just make, make quickly made me think that's my one um, thing where I always think whenever there's an election, whether it's in the UK or um, the US, something you spend four years with one president doing something and then four years they spend four years reversing what's happened and trying to do something forward. It feels like a back and forth. So I think that the whole yeah. 50 year trajectory, like you're saying, is a whole different way of having a system. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. I think this like cultural, like just, I think maybe even deeper than, than culture, these differences are just, yeah, so significant that it's so funny that in, I think in Europe, yeah, if you mentioned the idea of social credit, it's like, oh my God, no, like um, you can, see it derailing really quickly here whereas um you know my my Chinese friends that I've spoken to they're like oh yeah it's a good solution like okay <laughs> um yeah I mean when when I was in China last um you know I uh I remember trying to like get a get a sense from people what what how they saw us um and also very delicately tried to understand how they responded to the kind of western critiques the, the usual tropes that we have against china um and I'm, the one comment that um really stuck in my mind is um okay you guys have democracy and that's great but at the time the yellow vest movement was very strong and the news footage was full of you know cars and shops burning in paris and um and so he said you've got the you know you've got democracy but paris is on fire explain that to me um and uh, and i thought it was a very um I, I it was very poignant the fact that you know they value stability uh and long-termism i think much more than we do we value individual freedom and hedonism perhaps uh a lot more than they do and and really i think this century on all these questions coming back to esg you know we have to start breaking out of very short-term thinking we have to be thinking about long-term impact and we're starting to see that in the west as well we're starting to see like the, the move against plastic pollution has been so rapid in such a short amount of time it's fantastic mm -hmm. 
Um, but um, we still have a challenge around our political system, around how do we design that, you know, ESG is a great counterbalance to short-term shareholder value. And I, that's why I'm so excited being part of this community because we're balancing, you know, yes, it's important to invest in companies that are going to deliver returns, pay dividends, be profitable, hire people on those, those sorts of things. But it's also important that we invest in companies that have long-term sustainable impact on the world. Mm-hmm. And ESG balances those things. What we don't have is that political balance. Um, you know, our, our politicians are, are elected um, based on promises which, you know, uh, they have no real incentive to see through. And, um, and we've been probably lucky in Europe to have had so much stability that we've had over the last 60 years. But economic growth, I guess, has taken away criticism of our system. And now we're probably entering a period of stagnation. It's unlikely that we're going to see the same, you know, like, you know, you and, and I are probably only sort of half a generation apart. But um, what was true when I was growing up and probably was true when you were growing up was this idea that our future, our lives would be better than our parents and their lives mm-hmm. were better than their parents. So it was this continuous narrative of progression. Yeah. I think that got broken in 2008. And I think it's only now that people are starting to realize that the world of 2021 is no better than the world of 2011 or 20, 2001. And in fact, in many respects, for a lot of people, it's shittier than it was. Mm-hmm. And I think that trend is going to continue and our political system and that trend, I don't think are very compatible. And we've got to think that through. And to me, that's philosophy. You know, this <laughs> whole question of how do we design the, the world that we want to live in? And what are the strategies um, that we use to nudge from where we are today to that future world? That's the act of talking about that is the act of philosophizing. Yeah. And that's very similar to what politics is about. It's very similar to what economics is about. It's very similar to what data science is about. We're, we're modeling the world as it is today. We're modeling the world as we want it to be. And we're designing strategies to nudge us there. Each of those disciplines, data science, politics, economics, and philosophy, are trying to do the same things with just different language. So That's a really nice way to put it. I never thought about uh, data science in that way. But, yeah. yeah, next time everybody asks me for what I do for a, for a living, I'm just going to be, I'm a philosopher. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but yeah that's so really nice um anyway yeah it's, it's, I think, oh, sorry excuse me <laughs> everywhere um yeah I think uh, it's a really interesting point that uh, you're making I wonder um what I want to talk a little bit more about ethics grade if um, possible do you like how how have companies sort of received because you said that you based the grade on what the data that's yeah, the data that's um, publicly available. Um, yeah. Have you maybe heard from companies who are like, what do you mean we got a D? <laughs> <laughs> you, want, you, want, you, want the, um, you want me to spill the beans on some of yeah, the Yeah, you, you don't have to name names. <laughs> yeah, no, I probably, I probably won't name names because I don't want to get sued too much. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I, I also got called out by uh, some companies that I, I criticized in the paper, so I know they're... Yeah. <laughs> So I think this is this is the um, this is the really interesting thing about what I do because I I've got this kind of love hate relationship with the tech industry. So um, uh, you know I like everyone else buy buy a lot of their products and spend a lot of money on their things, um, and you know begrudgingly use some of the services because I have to. Um, and so on a personal level, I've got a very 
I say mixed relationship. Yeah, you know, some there's some tech companies I I have a lot of admiration for, and others which I really wish didn't exist or wish would be broken up. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's my personal view, and you know, um, I'm not using ethics grade as a tool uh, to to promote my 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 personal objectives. Um, I think what we've really got to make sure is that we are uh, consistent and fair, and and, and we, we do quality research in, in what we do. And and I think we do that. And I think my team is dedicated to that mission. And I think we've done the right things in putting the controls in place and communicating those controls, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I guess we've we've really been on guard at, you know, this has been born out of a bit of activism on my part. You know, I've been a commentator on the tech industry. And but at the end of the day, we we're not trying to just beat up tech companies. We want to show shading and we want to show best practice and salute and celebrate best practice and hopefully use that to nudge everyone else. Um, and therefore, with that all that said, it's, it is quite upsetting, I guess, for me personally, when I do get the hate mail from, <laughs> from tech companies um, because they do totally misunderstand our intentions in so many cases. So the vast majority of the companies that we rate, the vast majority just ignore us. And that's absolutely fine. You know, mm-hmm. we write to them. We send it by, we send the um, scorecards by post and by email initially. And we give companies a couple of weeks to respond. And if they don't respond, we just go ahead and publish. Um, and we do that because obviously we want to give them a fair chance to, to say, look, this is just so wrong. You missed, you know, X, Y, and Z. And we think you should re-rate us. And that has happened and we have. And that's, 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 that's absolutely fine. Um, what we really are encouraging companies to do is to fill in a survey because obviously what you can see from the public domain isn't ever going to be the whole story. And mm-hmm. so there might be, you know, controls that an organization has put in place that they haven't communicated publicly um, and don't want to communicate publicly. And maybe there's entirely legitimate reasons why they wouldn't want to do that from a competitive perspective. And we still want to give them the opportunity to um, to get a, a fair and accurate score based on on what they're doing um so we've designed our process in such a way as to do that and it's very familiar to them i'm sure from other esg companies that do exactly the same thing around climate risks um so so yeah the vast majority of companies ignore us um but a good chunk don't ignore us um but then the ones that don't ignore us i guess there's sort of three three groups um there are a group a small group but a growing group and hopefully over time that group will grow of enthusiastic responses. Um, people who are very engaged, they want to complete the survey, they want to, you know, maybe slightly disappointed with their result, particularly if it's a, a B or a C, a low B or a C. Um, and they typically have already started to do initiatives and then they feel that maybe we're not picking up all of the story. Um, mm-hmm. And that's great. And that's really great. And we're really bend over backwards to help them. Um, and in many cases, it's, it's simply the case that, um, they've got ideas, but the things that they're putting in place aren't complete enough and therefore we can't rate them. Or um, it might be that they, what they have exists behind closed doors and they haven't communicated that publicly, um, in which case the survey really helps. So that group of people is great. There's the next group of people who are kind of somewhat apathetic about what we're doing. They're kind of in, interested in like, mm-hmm. oh, you're looking at these types of risks and huh, that's interesting because we didn't really see that as ESG, okay. And then when they kind of look um, at what we do, they kind of shrug their shoulders and say, yeah, well, we kind of, we focus on the climate stuff or we focus on tech for good or we focus mm. on this. We're kind of not so interested in what you're doing because frankly, we're not 
kind of majoring on this and you can kind of you can kind of see quite quickly that um uh you know this is this is this isn't where they're going to shine and so they lose interest very quickly mm. and so they're kind of the watermelons um the companies that look good on the outside but probably aren't that good on the inside yeah <laughs> so it's just interesting to know who they are and for yeah. us it's about maintaining that relationship because we think that that might be a good commercial position to take today but you know that will change and i'm sure like many companies you know 20 years ago might have said you know what human rights and climate yeah i care but it's not in our business interest to do much so hey ho let's carry on <laughs> as we are and and i think there's a lot of companies in in relation to that in the tech space um and then there's the third group and the third group i just mystified by because i get really angry <laughs> <laughs> um and abusive um abusive and, and was, oh wow yeah, really abusive um it, it's personal and um wow i guess you know because you know you're you're kind of deep in in philosophy you know you know a, a sort of ad hominem attack usually comes from a place of weakness mm. um and and that's exactly you know my view on it so i try not to take it personally but um but it usually starts with an ad hominem which is you know who the heck are you to judge us? You know, don't you don't know what you're doing. I'm a PhD mm. in X, Y, Z. I used to be a professor of Y. You know, um, you know, we have X, you know, million billion users. So really, anything you say is 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 meaningless. Um, yeah, th- those are the nice ones. Um, <laughs> wow. <laughs> um, wow. I didn't realize so, people were going to get that defensive. <laughs> yeah, and I think that says everything. That really says mm. absolutely everything. And um, and I. I, I think um, you know our job is is just to create, say okay look the door is open when you want to walk through it um, and then maybe to kind of try other access points into the organisation because it may just be that one particular group has been offended um, but I I get it that um, you know if if your job is um, you know if your job is AI ethics uh, or data privacy or you are looking at some of these things and you're a, you know, a good well-meaning person and someone comes along and says. Hey, your work sucks. Um, <laughs> and, and then maybe, maybe you would be on the defensive. Um, but I would like to hope there's enough about the substance of what we're doing, you know, on our website and in our material and in our communication, um, for them to realise that you know, a, we're not a scam, and b, you know, because we don't make money out of these guys. We're not, we're not saying, hey, pay, pay us fifty thousand bucks and we'll give you an A. You know, we, <laughs> yeah. I'm sure there are people out there who do that. That's not us, but. Um, I, uh, it's just always disappointing when when people's first reaction is um, is sort of they get on the attack straight away uh, mm. as opposed to you know listening. Um, but you know we we're learning so much from 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 having these conversations with companies, so it's interesting. Yeah, it's quite funny because I would I don't know I have this idea that philosophers I'm not myself a philosopher so <laughs> um, are sort of like more mature than other people and are more willing to have no, no. discussions so it's funny oh, no. That, you know. <laughs> no. oh okay wrong wrong i, I, I mean philosophers. i don't want to bash i don't want to bash academia too much because um you don't want to bite the hand that feeds you and I've, I've got a very good relationship with the university of bristol which has been um you know a really good source of talent for us and and resources and support etc um, but I think academia is a kind of a weird world, um, which is a bit of a bubble in its own right. And I think it performs such an important service uh, to the community, to our community in general. But at the same time, it is a bubble and it's very different to the commercial world. And what's weird, I guess, about this AI ethics 
place that we're in is that there's a lot of crossover right now from academia into corporates and mm. you know there's a lot of people that talk about we need more philosophers in in the tech industry I'm, I agree with that but um, I think it's a lot easier to take somebody who's done a degree in behavioral psychology or, or philosophy and mold them into the commercial world and help them use their talents and skills and training to have good impact it's a lot I think it's a lot easier doing that than taking somebody who's been a you know professor of of philosophy for 20 years at a university who's kind of got all of that baggage all of that uh, legacy and then put them in a commercial setting and get them to behave like a commercial person um yeah. and I think that's yeah. a challenge and I think that's kind of what we see as well is can, that uh, those yeah. types of people tend not to adjust very well at least in our view I mean I'm sure they do a great job wherever they work but in terms of dealing with people like us they probably don't like I mean you know if you're a professor of philosophy and you get someone like me who hasn't got a PhD marking your work then yeah I guess it's gonna hurt I guess it's gonna hurt but <laughs> ways and means perhaps <laughs> yeah yeah I can imagine I mean I think um oh, there's so much like I'm just about to finish my PhD um and I think in academia that yeah there's so much it's so much about criticizing everybody's work um mm-hmm. but then I think we're also quite bad at <laughs> taking criticism uh, at least uh, my PhD is in computer science not um, um not philosophy but I don't know in my mind philosophy is mostly just telling each other you're wrong <laughs> I mean I mean it can be <laughs> I think Sorry, I think I think that's what put me off I was going to do my PhD in philosophy um when I finished my master's and my uh, professor was like oh yeah you'll spend four years doing it to get to the end to be told that that's all a bunch of crap and I was like oh okay <laughs> I was like you're not really setting it to me he was like but you should do one he's like you should stay on and I was like hmm I'm not so sure now but um, I, I also wanted to ask a bit more about we had um, we had Mike Butcher on a few weeks ago from TechCrunch I know that yeah. he he recently did an article on ethics grade actually and yeah. he was talking a lot about VC um, investors and how they haven't obviously historically seen the value in ethics or haven't historically been necessarily ethical with their investments or just more cared about growth have what have you kind of have you seen what reaction have you kind of seen to ethics grade in terms of on the market or um people seeing the value in ethics what kind of reactions have you had or what uphill battles have you faced if there have been any with regards to having ethics grade as you know actually grading something on the value of ethics yeah um it's great great question i mean it's too early for for me to give you a you know, ask me to come back in two or three years time and I'll, I can give you a really good answer on this because um, mm-hmm. it's, it's just really too early to say. And, and um, you know, we, yeah. built, we built the business because we saw demand. We, we believe that um, investors want data on these things and that's what we're building a business around. Um, you know, like any startup, we've got to discover this elusive product market fit. And um, what that means is we've got to build a product to what the market really wants. And we learn what the market wants because we get users growing on our site. We get people coming back, mm-hmm. people spreading the word and people eventually spending money with us. And so, you know, we're not having people spend money with us, but I think some of the other things are true. We are seeing our, our user numbers grow. We're seeing the number of people downloading our scorecards grow. Uh, we're seeing really interesting inbound leads. Um, um, you know, we're seeing people recommending us to 
companies, you know, some of the companies that ignored us first time around, you know, mm-hmm. we're now getting introductions into those organizations at a senior level and having some great conversations. And, um, you know, to, just today I had, you know, two really, really well-known companies that we were speaking with and we learned so much. It was fantastic and they were super engaged. And so that was great. Um, so I think for me, like right now I can say, yeah, it's really super positive. And, um, and from the investor standpoint, I guess what's been really great is we've had a lot of interest from investors who want to invest in ethics grade. Um, and that's been perhaps the biggest surprise. You know, when you're an entrepreneur and you're trying to grow a business, you, you're normally doing the knocking on the doors mm. and you get to deal with a lot of rejections. And, um, you know, don't get me wrong, we still had a few rejections so far, but the, the, our door is the one being knocked more than we're knocking on other people's doors. And so... Um, I think we're in a really lucky place. And obviously Mike wrote about Essex Grade and his article has really helped us, you know, get get those um those inbound interests from investors. Um but I think I think the thing which I guess we have an advantage of is, you know, I come from Fidelity the last few years and I've had my career mostly in finance and most of the people around us have come from the finance industry. And so we know that at the end of the day, you know, the financial industry is as much as it likes to pretend that it's learned from 2008 and it's a bunch of good people trying to do good things in the world. Um, at the end of the day, it's an industry that's there to like, you know, help take people who've got money and help them make more money. And that's what the finance industry does. Mm-hmm. It has, as, as I explained to um, one of my cousins who tried to try to understand what, I, what it is I do for a living. I said, I, I help rich people get richer. And, and, <laughs> and, and that's the sad truth about what, what most of my career has been about. Um, but essentially, um, you know, what uh, I think what, what that realization is that, um, you know, if, if a firm like Amazon, which you know, is a is a watermelon uh, in that it does a lot of really great things from a green climate agenda. But at the same time, you've got delivery drivers pissing in bottles because they're not allowed to take loo breaks. You know, that that's an organization which unless they fix those things, it's unsustainable. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and we've seen so many good examples recently of, um, you know, Deliveroo, the food delivery service, um, you know, their IPO got blown up basically because, um, people were concerned about gig worker rights and, and all the kind of questions that came around that. And as a result, a whole bunch of investors said, we're not going to invest in this company because it just carries too many risks or Boohoo, um, you know, loads of human rights yeah. questions, worker rights questions around, around their factory production, you know, and, um, you know, th- these are th- these are great examples, I think, of investors who just saying, look, um, we, we're, we're scared a bit about the risk. And the, and the truth is, is there's not enough data on these 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 questions. Um, and so I think we're in a fabulous position in, in that regard. And essentially what we're trying to do is um, understand what investors care about. Um, and that's difference. Right. So, you know, yeah. you both. I'm sure really good friends, um, sure have a lot in common, but there's going to be things that you're going to disagree about. And at the very least, it's going to be about the balance, the, the you know, you've got one issue and another issue and how important is one versus the other. And you might broadly agree, but when it came to it, you had to pick one or the other. You might have have these disagreements. Mm. And when these, you know, when you multiply and expand these disagreements across the whole of the investment community, they, they tend to, um, to, uh, to, 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 to get even more intractable. And, and, and a great simple example is diversity. Um, so you'll, you'll struggle right now to find somebody who says that diversity is not important and rightly so. Um, and so it seems like common sense that you would build diversity into your ESG framework. 
Now, a really difficult question, which is obvious, is of an ESG score, how important is diversity compared to, say, climate change? So, you know, that's a question that anyone in the ratings business is, is, answer, is trying to answer. Some people might say climate change should be 90% of the ESG score and diversity should be 10%. Other people might say, oh, it should be 85 and 15. Mm-hmm. Somebody else might say, well, diversity is not the only thing that matters. You've also got to factor in animal rights. And so we'll give diversity a 10 and animal rights a five and climate change can have everything else. Um, somebody else might say, diversity is the only thing I care about. To help the environment, people need to be treated equally. So you can see this is a problem. But even when you look in diversity, you know, just at a very simplistic level, you know, there's been two big themes over the recent years around gender and race. Um, so are they equal? Um, or is one more important than the other? Or is one more urgent than the other? And the thing is, is that we're all going to have a different view on this. Um, and we all come from a different perspective on this. And, you know, we're three white people on a call and we're going to have a very different view to if, you know, there was somebody, um, uh, you know, from a different community on the call and, and had suffered the prejudice and, and discrimination throughout their life, they would, they would have a very different perspective. And, and that's entirely normal. And so I guess what we're trying to recognise is that there isn't a one-size-fits-all approach to this. Um, and if you boil ESG back to what it's really about, it's about alignment of capital investment to values. And if all of our values are different, then we need to recognise that. We need to build a system whereby we can provide that matchmaking. And you know what? What we're doing is no different to what YouTube do. You know, there's the same... 13 and a half billion videos on YouTube when you look at it and when I look at it, but you get them in a different order to me. And that's mm. entirely right, perhaps. Um, so we're building, we're building that. We're building a, we're building a dating platform for <laughs> how people look at ethics. And right now, unfortunately, you're getting kind of my view of the world when you come to Ethics Grade websites. Um, but hopefully soon, once we've unpacked this a little bit more and can offer that personalization service, which we've been talking about, um, then everyone can see which companies align to their values the most. And I think that's when we really can start to make a difference because I think that's what really matters. Well, that's really interesting. I would love to see, I guess, uh, you, know, you know, a couple of years ago, there was that quiz going around that you answer a bunch of questions and they would tell you which party, like political party yeah. you align most to it. So yeah. it'd be yeah. interesting to see something like that. Like, oh, these are sort of how we rate the companies based on what, your values are according to the 10 questions we asked you <laughs> very profound that's, that's exactly it i mean cambridge analytica i mean that's kind of what they did um mm-hmm. and you know that created trump and brexit and you know uh and also got barack obama elected let's face it so um mm-hmm. i think this 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 question is like whether you use it for good or evil i think if you use if you use this kind of modeling and behavioral analytics um to nudge people uh mm-hmm. into changing their views on things and i think then you can quickly cross that creepy line and the way you don't cross that creepy line is to be much be very transparent with your users and that's what you're trying to do and help them understand where those limits are um and obviously Cambridge Analytica and Facebook didn't do that particularly well or at all <laughs> and, and they will forever be you know resonate associated with those issues um but it's exactly the same technique that we're trying to you know we're trying to understand um, you know, we don't have that kind of survey built yet, that that kind of um, mm-hmm. questionnaire, you know, tell us tell us these answers, three questions, and we can therefore tell you your ethics grades um, assessment of, of, of the, you know, in, uh, automotive industry or the airline industry, etc. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what we're, we're, we're looking to do. 
And I think you know, what we're offering is a mirror. And I think that type of technology um, as a mirror is, is, is entirely fine and reasonable. Um, unless someone tells me otherwise, I, I think what we're trying to do there is a is a public service. But I think if we were doing that to manipulate or doing that in order to mm. influence an electoral system uh, in, a, in an unequal way, then I think that would be extremely toxic. And that's that's what's happened the last ten years. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, I think that's been the sad thing with. Um with the I think that's why people obviously lack trust in a lot of that uh, the nudging and what it can mean I guess I guess it's who is operating it um but I wanted to mention that you said at the beginning of the call that you don't um use a phone anymore I just wanted to yeah. ask you <laughs> I just want to ask you what your yeah your the reasoning behind that was and what the story behind it is yeah, well, it drives people nuts. Um, <laughs> yeah. How do people get hold of you? I want some tips, actually, because I'd be wanting to do away with my iPhone, but I just, I don't know. Yeah. yeah. So I feel like we're in relationships with our phones these days. <laughs> well, I think that's, that's, I think that's the problem. So um, before I answer the question, I, I would, I would point you both at two, two writers. Um, who I guess I, I've, I've um, assimilated a lot of their thinking in, in my own worldview. And hopefully your audience who are interested in um, these questions of tech and philosophy will, will find mm-hmm. this interesting. Um, so one is Lewis Mumford, who is kind of pretty unknown, um, but deserves to be, I think, better recognized. He was a historian of technology and he was operating in the um so 1930s through the 1980s type type period but you know a lot of his great works are from you know the early mid 20th century and Mm -hmm. so he was analyzing the industrial revolution and from a kind of how it impacted the world how the world was changing and reading you know okay like reading his book today uh techniques and civilization 80 years after he wrote it i mean he'll give you an example of of where you know just kind of advice and caution he was writing in the interwar period and so he was looking at Nazi Germany from a from a, an American eye and being quite, in many ways, like I've just been today, like looking at China and saying, you know, there's not all evil here. There's some good and bad, and but you know, there's some things here you could really admire. And of course, you know, we've got the benefit of history to know what happened next. And so some of his um, praise of of Nazi Germany is is, is very jarring, very hard to read. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think if if you can forgive that and understand the context he's living in, and I, you know, I don't, he's not being anti-Semitic or prejudicial in his view. He's just purely looking at their relationship to technology and how it's impacting their society. I think it's a very interesting read, and I think it's very relevant to where we are today. Um, and there's some there's some really I think poignant things in his writing about how um, how we kind of sleepwalk into positions where tech. Um, know influences our lives and we kind of get fallen into this trap and one of one of the stories about Lewis Mumford I think is interesting is that he was interviewed um someone's going to put me right because I'm going to get this anecdote wrong but he was interviewed (laughs) sometime in the 1970s uh or early 1980s and someone sat in his home and he made him a cup of tea and the interviewer commented on his fridge and said like Lewis like your fridge is from like the 1940s like how on earth why haven't you got a modern fridge and Lewis turned around and said to him why are they are the new ones colder and um and I think it was such a beautiful quote because um you know he really had this view 
that technology at its best was technology that lasted and and technology that served that functional purpose but was built to last and and that was really the important mm. criteria and that's definitely a philosophy that i've um that i've definitely taken taken on on board um the second the second writer and, and he's somebody who's a little bit more edgy i would say <laughs> is um ted kuczynski uh, mm-hmm. who's better known as the unabomber and um, oh, yeah. i was thinking wait that makes any... sounds really familiar i, know, I literally <laughs> was just thinking <laughs> <laughs> So, um, so he, um, I think, no, no, no conversation about Ted Kaczynski. Uh, you can start without the caveat, which is uh, okay. The guy's the most prolific American domestic terrorist and killed a lot of people, injured a lot of people. You know, done some pretty awful things, and no way anything I'm going to say condones it. But um, what was also worth mentioning is that he, a little bit like me, and and, and that's hopefully where the parallels end. Um, you know, he was somebody who was very much in love with technology in the 1960s. He was a top academic of his day, um, you know, a brilliant mathematician, and and then suddenly uh, turned and turned quite quickly against it, and then, you know, became uh, you know a terrorist as a result, and kind of lived an anti-tech life. Mm-hmm. I guess what's different between me and Ted Kuczynski is, you know, he had this view that we need to. Um, absolve ourselves from technology. If the human race and society was going to survive, we need to abandon technology and get to kind of a pre-tech existence. And he was really trying to kind of agitate for that. And his book, um, you know, his manifesto, um, uh, you know, really kind of explores this this point. And I think I think he's wrong. Um, and, I, and I think the reason he's wrong is, you know, I think there's two things to humanity that are essential. Um, qualities. One is is language. Um, I don't think we are anything without our language. And the second is technology. I think we are, we have technology as an extension, expressions, leverage of ourselves. And I don't, I can't imagine humanity without technology. And so I think his his fundamental position is is flawed and wrong. And 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 um, but I think what he is right about is our relationship to technology does need a fundamental um, reevaluation. And the quote I would give for you from him, which I think is, well, not a quote, but the anecdote from his book, which is so fascinating, is when he writes about the motor car and he says that technology essentially always enslaves us. And, and he talks about the motor car and says that when the motor car was first brought to the market, it was sold to us as a way of giving you freedom. If you buy a motor car, you're free to drive wherever you want across the United States. You can explore the world with your motor car. You can go shopping whenever you want. You can come and go as you please. You don't have to wait for a bus. You don't have to wait for a a train. You don't have to be a slave to the schedule. You can come and go as you please, travel as far as you want. It's a beautiful thing. It's freedom. Skip forward 50 years. Can you imagine living in Atlanta, Georgia without a motor car? You can't go shopping. You can't take your kids to school. You can't go to work. There's no way that you can live a normal life without a motor car in 1980s Atlanta, Mm -hmm. Georgia. And he says that technology has is is this um, has this constant case of of enslaving us, and I think our relationship to the mobile phone is exactly is exactly falling into that same trap. And so I um, decided at the end of 2019 that um, I wanted to reevaluate my relationship with my mobile phone, which. Um, and, I, and I guess there's sort of two issues I, I had with it. One is that I was finding that my, num- my amount of screen time was uh, was was unhealthy, um, and 
And secondly, I was concerned about this more Lewis Mumford point about reliability. Um, and what was particularly annoying to me was the fact that I had, you know, spent a thousand pounds on an <laughs> iPhone, a thousand pounds. I bought it outright. I didn't buy it on a, you know, the, I think the seductive thing about mobile phone contracts, contracts is you pay like 20, 30 quid a month. And it's like, you know, it doesn't Why seem not? like that much, but if you buy the damn thing, it's a thousand pounds. And, um, and it's 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 completely useless five years later. You know, by mm. the time you've upgraded the software, um, so I mean, here it is, my 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 old iPhone four. <laughs> it's <laughs> ten years old, um, and um, you know, it's in immaculate condition. It's got barely a scratch on it. Um, but you upgrade it to iOS nine point three point six, which I think was the latest version. It runs like a dog. It's almost unusable because it's so slow. And half the apps that I wanted to use simply no longer run on it. And I can't downgrade it. Um, Apple won't change the battery. Um, you know, they won't even supply genuine batteries to people that will supply uh, fix the battery. Mm. So I've got this beautiful piece of engineering that's been really well designed, um, was very expensive, and it's totally useless. And it's basically an expensive paperweight. And I thought, do you know what? This is, this is, there's something really wrong with this. And I wondered whether I could just not have a mobile phone. So um, so I did decided not to go completely cold turkey because I wanted a way of contacting people. But so I thought, well, if not the iPhone 10 or 9 or 8 or 7 or 6 or 5 or 4, which phone, you know, I need a phone. What phone should I get? And there's obviously all these feature phones that come out or the, the one phone and the ethical phone or whatever they're called. Yeah. Um, and I thought, yeah, that kind of seems like a bit of a gimmick. Um, and then I thought, let's go back to this kind of print, this Lewis Mumford principle of the fridge. You know, what is the phone that I could buy, which would be the most, um, you know, the, the one which would last the longest? And the answer know? is... Oh, my God. Yeah. Is it enough? Please, please. <laughs> and I like, drop half my shelf in my head now. Throw back um, to my teenage years, I think. But this was my last ever mobile phone. Oh, my God. Oh my God. <laughs> Not my first, but my last. What? Um, I love it's a it. Nokia, it's a Nokia 2110. And the reason I picked the Nokia 2110 is because it's got the really cool ringtone um, that annoys everyone when it, when it goes off. Um, <laughs> but it's also pretty much the oldest phone which will work on a modern network. So it's, a, I think, a 900 megahertz um, a network, which used to be Cellnet in the UK, but it's now O2. In fact, when you connect this phone when you put the battery in, it will actually come up and say it's connected to Cellnet because, you know, Cellnet didn't exist. Yeah, they went out of business like <laughs> 20 years ago, but it still thinks it's connected to that. Um, the battery lasts for three days, which is about half of what it did when it was new, which is still a lot better than my iPhone. Yeah. Um, I can send SMS. I can make calls, receive calls. The annoying thing was that um, the little jack on the bottom of it where you plug the um, the headphones in uh, is not a standard you know, it's one of these kind of weird oh, yeah. sort of Nokia things. Yeah. So I scoured the internet for ages, eventually found some some dude in Germany who was selling original um, Nokia oh, wow. headset. <laughs> so I said, well, how many have you got? He said, I've got six. I said, I'll have all of them because if this is going to last me for the next 30 years, then I might as well stock up. Oh, um, and um, so I, I, I bought this and um, people thought I was... Well, people think I am mad. Uh, that's definitely true. Um, <laughs> it, it worked as a really, really, really great phone. And then the pandemic happened. 
Um, and, um, and so I don't need a phone to go out because I'm not going out. And, um, and of course, all of the kind of day-to-day -day communication that I would do on a phone, you know, checking emails, Slack, those sort of things, a browser, I'm in front of my computer. And so actually kind of, you know, the catharsis of not having a device for four hours a day when I'm not working, um, you know, I just don't need the phone. So I, I take it, I take it out. It's in the car right now. Um, and when I go out in the car, then I have a mobile phone exactly as they were designed. <laughs> um, and um, the rest of the time I don't, I don't have one. So it's been, um, so to say I don't have a phone is, is perhaps not entirely accurate, but I don't have a smartphone and I'm 17 months in and um, thanks to the pandemic, I don't think I'm going to go back just yet. So um, yeah, that's the story. But, uh, about a year ago, it's been longer than a year ago, before the pandemic actually started, I was looking at getting one of these Nokias because I was like, you know, I'm constantly on my phone, like all day, if I'm awake, I'm looking at a screen. If it's not because I'm working, it's just on my phone, I'm like, mm. um, yeah. and I thought this is driving me crazy. But the only problem I have is I have to listen to music wherever I'm walking uh, <laughs> or like yeah. an audiobook or something. And I get lost just all the time so I thought how am I going to live without Google Maps like, <laughs> <laughs> I know that's something that my mum and dad always make fun of me for they're I obviously rely heavily on Google Maps if I'm driving and my dad's like read a map he was like we knew how to read maps and get around just with a map yeah and it's I mean, yeah we do I feel like we really do rely on technology so much now and yeah just for everything just trying to get around to, to see people I think we feel this um complete sense of it you know everyone says it's like a phantom limb now to to everyone and it, it really yeah. is it, I think it has got like that and I think I think it's I think it's I think it's I think it's a problem and I think um there's I mean like just on the on the maps front I mean I think that there's a one of the problems with Google Maps is that it doesn't store the map uh, uh locally on the phone it doesn't do the computation of the of the of the, um, well, perhaps actually the computation of the route isn't necessarily a, a terrible thing to do centrally, but um, every time you're using Google Maps, you're essentially, you know, you're pulling data off a data center. And you know, if you if you add that up and multiply it by the number of millions of people using Google Maps, yeah, that thing has a carbon footprint. Um, and um, the old way of doing this, in fact, my, my iPhone 4, I've got an iPhone 4 in my car, which I use as a sat-nav and it runs TomTom um, -tom, which is fully downloaded onto the phone. So I have a sat nav, it's running on an iPhone, just happens to be an iPhone 4. <laughs> I paid 50 quid, I think, for the TomTom software on, on the App Store. Um, but, you know, it still works today, you know, nine years after I first downloaded it. And I think that's a really good example of good technology. It's built to mm. last, works 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 perfectly well. Um, what my concern is with a lot of these um, app-based systems is the lock-in that, that it, that it um, imposes on us. And um, and I think there's a I think the my my I think if anyone was listening to this um, to this podcast who maybe comes from I don't know couples therapy or, or relationship therapy they would recognise what I'm going to say in that um, our relationship with mobile phones is almost like an abusive relationship in many respects you know it it doesn't do us good um but yet we somehow are addicted to it um and i think uh, i think we really ought to be evaluating our relationship with some of these particularly as it's designed to be addictive i mean i think this is the this is the yeah. insidious thing about it so many of these apps um are, are designed to 
have that dopamine effect on us. And, you know, Amanda, when you were saying that you were, you, know, you can't drag yourself off it, you, 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 that's not your fault. That's the fault of the designers. In fact, that was the intention <laughs> of the designers. Yeah. And, and anyone who's watched somebody, I mean, I, 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 I had a big argument with my parents so at, at Christmas because, um, you know, my, my, my mum was there. I had my kids there. And um, my kids were playing and my mum was just kind of mindlessly scrolling on her iPad. <laughs> and what was happening, really, if you analyse it, was she had a, a, a very rare opportunity for a day to spend a day with her grandchild during a global pandemic when it was the perhaps the last opportunity for a few months. In fact, it was the last opportunity for a few months because we haven't seen her since then. Um, and what she was doing instead was she was playing a game against an algorithm and the algorithm was winning because the algorithm was designed, how long can I keep her mindlessly scrolling? Mm -hmm. And she was a sucker for it. And we had a big argument that didn't end very well, but um, I, I think this is this is the problem we have is is the tech industry is has an incentive structure which um, we are not all aware of and, and we need to kind of blow that apart a bit more. Yeah, no, I think I'm... you've convinced me, I'm gonna try it. <laughs> I feel, yeah I feel like a lot I think it is it is like an abusive relationship though because I think the amount of people that I hear um, or I speak to that want to have breaks from Instagram breaks from Twitter you know people have to take breaks for their mental health from or the amount of people but like, oh, I'm gonna like take a break from my phone this afternoon that is like having a relationship where it's like oh I need to step away from you because you're making me feel bad and you're making me not feel good about myself and I think yeah. as well what you were saying about Apple it's really not and um, the longevity of, you know, technology should be here for the long term. Um, this isn't really, it's not really sustainable, is it? The the route we go down with tech now, and just if you look at the iPhone, bringing out a new iPhone every year sounds wonderful. And obviously people buy into it, but is that a sustainable way if you just even take away the, the resources that it's using? I think it's, we have got to this kind of crazy, crazy place yeah. where I don't think tech can really keep sustaining itself at this level just from, an environmental issue as well i think the environment will be hopefully the breaking point um and and will help people realize this more and i think therefore tech companies will have to take notes um i mean there's one very simple thing that tech companies could do so the reason that they forced us to update the software on the app store or whatever device all the time is they claim it's for security and to alleviate cyber risk i mean it's absolute bullshit um so there's there's what they do is they they do fix cyber risks and security vulnerabilities but they also package it up with the new features and new functionality which slows the device down which then after mm -hmm. three or four years means you have to buy a new device and they should absolutely and this is something which i'm really devastated that the european union hasn't legislated against yet is they they really should be forced to separate those two things out the 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 service of of fixing security vulnerabilities is something essential that mobile phone companies ought to do as not mm. manufacturers ought to do and all device manufacturers ought to do um but it should be entirely separate and the functionality feature set should be optional and also um you know what i i'm concerned about is you know when we lose ability to be able to do things with our phones because we haven't kept them up to date there's no reason why my iphone 4 shouldn't be a perfectly usable mm. device but i can't download the NHS contact tracing app on it because it requires iOS, you know, 10 point whatever. And, you know, my concern is, as we move into this world where we might have digital um, immunity passports, um, you know, we, we kind of, it's really sort of 
a fucked up system where we might have to have an iPhone 10 or later in order to be able to travel freely or go to the pub or go to the cinema. I mean, it's insane. And what, when you talk to government ministers or policymakers about this, they assume that the they, they do recognize there are people who have um, you know, digital access problems, that they don't have technology, um, mm -hmm. but they assume that those people don't want, sorry, don't want technology. Um, and it's just a problem of they can't afford it or, we need to give them training so they can use it, et cetera. And one person I spoke to, I won't mention their name, but in the government, they said, well, it's fine because all of those people are going to die off in the next 20 years. So it's a problem that we're not going to have to worry about too much longer. Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> the, wow. Um, the, but, I mean, that's a fair point. If you if you assume that it's only people 80 or above who can't use technology, won't use technology, then it's a fair point that maybe the rest of us will all just naturally you know, want to do stuff. But I challenged that person. I said, I'm I'm somebody who actively unplugs. I actively don't want to do these things. And I, you know, I, I want to have a more healthy relationship with technology. So how do you deal with that? And, you know, they said, well, what do you mean? And I said, well, you know, when it comes to the census, you know, I don't want to do it online. I want to do it by a paper. When it comes to talking to my bank, I don't want to enroll on the, on the voice recognition system. I want to do it the old fashioned way with a password. And, and when it comes to immunity certification, you know, maybe I want to have an old fashioned paper passport and not something that requires me to carry around a device that runs iOS version 13 or above. And they got very confused by this because they assumed that people of my generation, our generation, would always want to have the latest device and it was just an affordability problem. Mm. Um, and then I think they realized that actually, um, uh, ex you know, extracting from tech is, is, is maybe something which is perhaps going to become more mainstream. And I think as my kids grow up, it's going to be an interesting position to take. You know, if I, if I right now said to my school that I don't want my kids to go into sex education class because I have a particular religious view, um, or I don't want my kids to learn about um, evolution because I have a particular religious view, my needs would be pandered uh, for without hesitation. And my kid could quite conceivably grow up to become a sixth former make those decisions for uh, you know, him or herself and be completely oblivious to those questions. Um, and, and that's entirely fine. But if I go to my school and say, I don't want my child to have to do his or her homework on a word processor um, printed out and emailed in, and I don't want to, them to use you know, YouTube as an education resource, I get laughed at. <laughs> Um, and really what I'm trying to do is protect my child from falling into an addictive trap, which is what I see most of technology to be. And I think we're, we're in this very odd place where, you know, particularly last in the last year, kids have had to use technology in order to be educated. Mm. And, and maybe that's a necessity. But I hope that we can kind of go back into this more healthy place once the pandemic is over. But I fear that we're not going to be. And um, I think that's a debate we need, we need to have a lot more of. Um, so I could talk all night about this. We should probably... Yeah, I'm looking at them like, oh no, it's just so interesting. But I know. Yeah, um, I think we. I know. Probably finish up. up. Here. Yeah. Even though I did want to ask more about anyone who was listening at the start is probably stopped a long time ago. So. <laughs> I know. I feel like we could talk so much about this. I wanted to ask you more about the EU regulations, but I'll have to ask that to you off off air. <laughs> and have you back? Yeah, I'll we'll have you back. <laughs> but thank you so much. It was yeah. So interesting. I feel like so many, so many good takeaways to, to think about that. 
I'm sure I'm sure we could go into keep talking about forever actually because this this yeah. stuff yeah this stuff is um just going to be a continuing continuing talks I, I feel in, in the coming years and the future yeah and we'll yeah. link um to ethics grade we'll link to uh, lewis mumford and the unabomber <laughs> in, in the description <laughs> uh you know what's funny actually i did a I, I did a talk actually on uh the big tech companies their morals and their philosophies and their manifestos and the, the woman i was working with charlie actually brought up the unabomber and made me read the manifesto because she mm. she she said that was a key manifesto to read that really links into text so yeah i'm glad you brought that one up actually but and you read it you read it all the way all the way through no no no, no. <laughs> <laughs> good, good. i need to finish it <laughs> it's not a it's not a big read it's it's like you know 20 30 i mean his book is, is a bit longer but the actual the original manifesto is like 20 30 pages and quite oh quite the manifesto oh i did read yeah, the, manifesto. the manifesto sorry i didn't i yeah. didn't read the book though no yeah, the book is the book is heavier going, um, but I mean, you've, if you read the manifesto, I mean, this, he makes the same points; he just elaborates on them. But um, I, I thought about. I mean, he's such an interesting, interesting guy, and I thought about writing to him once. Um, and um, is he still alive? He's in a high security yes, prison is, in the US, yeah. and um, for good reason, I should say. <laughs> and yeah. um, I thought about writing to him because there's some some, some things in the manifesto which I really. I really took away some some great insights from and there was other things I really wanted to argue to toss with him and I I guess like anyone else who might have tried I just wanted to kind of maybe see if you could win that argument and you could get him to um you know to to show so you know remorse for what he's done and um I thought it'd just be a really fun intellectual challenge and I had probably a bit too much time on my hands and then I I was flying to the US and I was filling in the customs form or the you know the uh, immigration form and one of the questions was, you know, have you had any any contacts with um, terrorists or been in touch with any terrorist oh groups? And I suddenly thought, do you know what? I probably shouldn't send him that email because um, or write to him uh, as it would have been, uh, because I would not be able to answer that question truthfully. And yeah, that's not going to be much fun when I arrive. So um, so I never yeah. did get in touch. But um, and so I'd probably encourage other people not to either. But uh, his work is worth reading um, uh, despite what he's done. So. yeah oh my god imagine yeah I think it's probably for the best that you that you did it but yeah I'm glad that you I brought that up actually but yeah thank you thank you so much for coming on it's been it's been such an interesting thank talk you. thank um, you both stay in touch and um hopefully this will be the first of all conversations so yeah we're hopefully, excited to see yeah, I need to I'll update on the phone <laughs> the phone quitting <laughs> yeah yeah and I can't see what ethics grader up to Thanks for tuning in, guys. We hope you enjoyed today's episode with Charles. I feel like that was a really, really interesting episode. Many takeaways. I wonder. Yeah. If... Stay updated to see if Amanda gives up her iPhone. I'm very inspired. Uh, let's see if, if I stick with it. I'm like going to become a Zen master when I walk with no music. Just pure meditation. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> and you can follow us on social media as usual. Let's chat ethics on Twitter. YouTube or just go to our website where everything is linked and it's mm -hmm. uh, www.letschatethics.co.uk mm, and we'll see you next week see you next week bye bye